Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be talking about Book 4 of Homer's Iliad. Last time, we discussed Book 3 and how the cause of war might be more complicated than just bringing Helen back, as well as how Homer's own activity bears some similarity to Helen's in as much as she weaves an image of the war, offers a catalog of warriors to Priam, and says the same amount as Homer does about Ajax, that is, two lines. Today, at the end of our lecture, we, we will have another occasion to reflect on Homer and his activity as a poet, or we might make a little progress on understanding what a poet is. Book four is broken up into three parts of unequal length. It opens with a scene in Olympus where the gods plan how to continue the war. Then, Athena leads the archer Pandarus to break the truce after the inconclusive duel between Menelaus and Paris. Then finally, we get another review of the troops in a sense, somewhat like the catalog of ships from Book 2 and like Helen's review of them in Book 3, though here there is more interaction between the reviewer, Agamemnon, and the reviewed. We will focus our attention, or at least most of it, on that third part. Um, but to begin with, Book 4 opens with Zeus taunting Hera and Athena, saying in effect, should we allow the war to continue, or should Menelaus be allowed to leave with Helen, with no sacking of Troy to take place? Hera says this would waste her work, and Zeus angrily replies that if things were up to her, she would devour the Trojans raw. She responds by offering to let Zeus destroy her favored cities in return for destroying Troy. And she says at the very least, Zeus should allow the Trojans, or rather Zeus should allow Hera and Athena to help the Trojans break the truce. Presumably, she must think that even if Zeus is dead set on honoring Troy, she can give the Achaeans a psychological edge at the outset of the fighting by leading the Trojans to break the truce insofar as one fights more fiercely or with more confidence when they believe that the other side is unjust. It is more satisfying to most men to fight with the belief that their cause is a just one. And so Athena goes down to facilitate the re-engagement of hostilities. Her descent is prefaced by a striking set of similes that run as follows. Quote, Down the goddess swept from Olympus's craggy peaks, and dove like a star the son of Cronus flings, Cronus with all his turning, twisting ways, a sign to men at sea, or a massive army marching, blazing on with a stream of sparks showering in its wake. Like a shooting star, Athena flashed across the earth, plunging down in the midst of both camped forces. One would glance at a comrade, groaning, What next? Battle again or peace from Zeus? Okay, so there are two similes there. In the first simile, a comparison using the words like or as, Athena dove like a star that the son of Cronus, which is to say Zeus, flings. Here then, in this first simile, the origin of shooting stars is manifestly divine, and that being divine, it ought to be interpreted by men 
as having significance for them. It isn't just a star shooting through the sky. It's a star shooting through the sky because God sent it so that you could see it. Um, And so men need to be looking for signs that will reveal to them what they ought to be doing that they could not have known that they should do without the divine sign. For why would a God send signs if human reason by itself could see clearly what a human ought to be doing? Okay, but the immediately subsequent simile that I read above goes like this. Like a shooting star, Athena flashed across the earth. End quote. Which is to say, this simile describes Athena as like a shooting star. But this time, the divine origin of a shooting star is not stressed like it was in the previous simile. Why would Homer produce two short similes in a row, um, saying that Athena is like a shooting star? Uh, If you took maybe too simple of a view, you could say something like, well, maybe Homer likes shooting stars. Or maybe he really, really wants us to imagine this moment. Or... This is just what poetic moments look like. I don't know. But I suspect that if Homer put two similes back to back that look nearly identical, we ought to examine what is different between the two. If there is no difference, then the repetition is meaningless. But here um, we have a shooting star from Zeus on one hand versus a bare or natural shooting star set right next to it. We see as well after the similes that many of the men who see it uh, immediately assume that it is a sign for them to interpret. But what if through this simile, Homer is telling us that different men take different approaches when they see these kinds of things. Some Some interpret them as signs, and some think of them as natural motions. Um, Another way to put this is to say that Homer quietly lays out two differing uh, accounts of the cosmos uh, side by side in a very subtle way, in a way that kind of easily passes you by if you don't pay too much attention to it. We'll see examples of this later, um, such as in Glaucos' famous speech to Diomedes about the leaves, um, that the, the generations of men are like leaves, where on one hand, Glaucus seems to say that, you know, individual men's lives are somehow don't mean anything. And in that sense, or in that way, he takes a kind of cosmic perspective um, or looks at things from the perspective of eternity. And then in the very next breath, Glaucus gives a very detailed account of his genealogy, um, which is to say that the particular individuals in your family matter a great deal. We'll look at that simile when we get there in much greater detail, and that will be coming up soon. But nevertheless, I think this is one of those passages where Homer quietly sets side by side two massively different accounts of the way that things are in a way that doesn't intrude too much into the story. But once you start to notice these things, you can't help but see that it comes up again and again. But we return here to book four. And as always, one simile is not enough evidence to tell us whether or not Homer is really offering us this choice to choose between these two two ways. To interpret the world, on one hand, as if gods exist, or, on the other hand, not to. But taking the simile as a clue 
I think that we will find characters and other similes throughout the Iliad um, who differ on the question of how to interpret such signs, as well as characters who themselves waver between both ways of seeing the world. So Athena persuades Pandarus to break the truce, the Trojan Pandarus to break the truce, and shoot Menelaus, and so he does. Athena makes sure that Menelaus is only scratched, and so Agamemnon goes about rallying and reviewing his troops. Agamemnon meets with and praises Idomeneus, the Ajaxes, both big and small, and Nestor. All of these he says very nice things to. And he also meets Menestheus, Odysseus, and Diomedes. These men he says very sharp, nasty things to. A few of these exchanges are particularly revealing. Let's start with the incredible contrast between how Ajax orders his troops versus how Nestor orders his troops. Ajax, and it seems after Ajax the Greater and Ajax the Lesser are both mentioned, it seems to focus a little bit more on Ajax the Greater. But nevertheless, Ajax is standing out in front of his densely packed troops. We see Ajax make no speech to his men, and we have no sense of how the men were ordered save that they are densely packed. Um, Again, Ajax stands in front of his men, indicating that he will heroically meet the battle first, ahead of the rest of his men, in order to inspire them. When Agamemnon praises Ajax for his troops' readiness, he ends his praise by noting how much courage lies in the chests of Ajax's men. Which is to say, Agamemnon sees Ajax and his men as principally relying upon moral virtue or courage in order to become victorious. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Ajax does not reply. Now, contrast Ajax's approach uh, with that of Nestor. We receive an image of Nestor actively posting different kinds of troops in different spots. The known cowards among Nestor's men he drives to the center of his formation so that they will be forced to fight and will not be able to flee. They'll have to run through their own men, men more courageous than them, if they would like to flee. And those men probably won't let them do that. Next, Nestor tells his men not to be heroic or to try to fight alone with the Trojans. Everyone needs to stay in formation if they wish for the best chance of survival. Finally, Nestor tells his charioteers not to throw spears from their cars. Presumably, this takes more skill and wastes spears, whereas the lower skill and higher success rate maneuver is to stab it down from the car. All this is to say, Nestor knows that many of his men are cowards. Some of them are foolishly noble, and many of them are unskilled. He orders his troops with a view to maximizing the effectiveness of his men on the assumption that they are not especially good troops. With his cunning, he uses reason to enhance their chances of survival as best he can. And strikingly, he ends his orders by saying that such tactics were used by men before Nestor's time successfully, and so they will do well here as well. So, on one hand, Nestor presents his mode of organization as something ancestral that is inherited from the past 
and is therefore trustworthy, insofar as our ancestors are superior to us. But, on the other hand, Nestor seems to be prudently ordering his men with a view to their limitations to ensure survival and, hopefully, victory. We can never forget that Nestor has been a warrior his whole life, but also that he has survived much longer than most men of his generation. Nestor presents himself as a mere transmitter of ancient custom, when really he seems to be ordering his men with a view to necessity, and a belief that virtue is not enough to win. Thoughtful planning is more needful and more effective than moral virtue in Nestor's eyes. Then Agamemnon finds Odysseus, whose troops are only now beginning to move into place, and so he shares sharp words with Odysseus, calling him shrewd with greed, and adds, why are you cowering here, skulking out of range? And Agamemnon doesn't stop until he has also mentioned that Odysseus is first when it comes to feasting, and never when it comes to, never first when it comes to approaching battle. In his commentary on the Iliad, Malcolm Wilcock points out that, quote, Homer says that the troops had not yet heard that the fighting was starting again. Odysseus, however, should have known, for he was one of the marshals of the single combat between Paris and Menelaus, and it was Pandarus's infringement of this combat that was causing the fighting to be renewed, end quote. That is, while Homer as narrator does indeed claim that the call to action had still not reached Odysseus's ears, Wilcock rightly points out that Odysseus probably did know that fighting needed to be renewed. So, either Homer did not pay attention to this detail as he composed the poem, or he quietly points out that the great tactician Odysseus perhaps was not entirely interested in having his men lead the charge into battle. However this may be, whether Odysseus is quietly avoiding combat or not, we see that when the fighting begins, he earns one of the first kills, either because he is brave through and through, and what Agamemnon said is not true at all, or because Agamemnon pays closer attention to him, Odysseus found it important to be out in front to get an early kill. Um, but we don't know yet. So let's end our look at Book 4 by examining a simile that signals the beginning of the major fighting. The simile goes like this, quote, Screams of men and cries of triumph breaking in one breath, fighters killing, fighters killed, and the ground streamed blood, wildly as two winter torrents raging down from the mountains, swirling into a valley, hurling their great waters together, flash floods from the wellsprings plunging down in a gorge, and miles away in the hills, a shepherd hears the thunder. So from the grinding armies broke the cries and crash of war. End quote. At first glance, the simile is fairly straightforward. The Trojans and Achaeans seem to be compared to the two winter torrents raging down from the mountains, whose waters are hurled together, and water that is hurled together um, appears as one. And so the waters appear as one as they intermingle, indistinguishable from the other, becoming a flood together that plunges down a gorge. But then the simile moves to a shepherd who hears the thunder but is not touched by the water, 
or is far enough away to hear the action, but not to see or feel it. Who is the shepherd meant to be in the simile? The best I could come up with is that perhaps he is Homer, or some kind of stand-in for Homer, that suddenly Homer has himself intrude into the poem. Homer standing out and distinguished from the undifferentiated roaring mass of men, the shepherd living the quiet life, but who realizes that after hearing the tumult of war, he must go to try and understand it. Well, that's all for this time. Uh, Brian Wilson, 